Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all listening and enjoying. I am very lucky today to reach out to a new friend of mine. His name is Branding Sterling Baker. He is a Knight of Illumination award-winning lighting designer. Today is one of those days where I'm just reaching out to people that I, I found them online and I, their, uh, their website just struck me as uh, inspirational and amazing and I loved all the photos. And so I just Googled him, uh, found his email address, reached out, and today this is a, an unfiltered, brand new introduction and that we are meeting for the very first time. So this is just a way of using our downtime to reach out to new people and learn new things and find new inspiration. So thank you so much for making an, making an hour to sit down and chat with me, Brandon. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So if anybody doesn't know Brandon, he is a the lighting designer at the Boston Ballet. We're going to have a little discussion about where we find inspiration today and how to transfer inspiration to the the next generation, if you will. So let's kind of get into how you got into the industry first, Brandon. Like, did you, uh, was this a planned thing or did you fall into our industry? I, I was very much planned. Everything in my life has been planned for better or for worse. And I, I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I grew up as a musician mostly, uh, and playing in everything from folk bands to rock bands to punk bands to metal bands, you name it, I played it. And it was, it was really fun. It was not necessarily my life's goal, but while I was playing in these, uh, these bands, I discovered sort of the medium of light. And uh, specifically, what I found was uh, I, I was playing music and I was also an illustrator. And I was drawing a lot when I was younger. And uh, at the age of 13, I discovered that the medium of light and lighting design was like this beautiful bridge between the world of music and the world of visual art. And so that kind of uh, inspired me to dedicate my life to being a lighting designer. And I was 13 years old and I'm 32 today. And it's my whole entire life has been dedicated to this. And it's um, so, yeah, so I moved to New York. I, I eventually, well, I studied at uh, a school called Cal Arts in Los Angeles, just north of the city. And I uh, studied lighting there. And then I, uh, the next day, two days after graduation, really, I moved to New York uh, for a program called the Hemsley Internship at Lincoln Center. And I uh, really learned from the best. And I, I kind of uh, learned from assisting in ballet companies, opera companies, uh, large festivals, uh, and then Broadway eventually. And after that, I sort of developed my own career um, as a designer, mostly for dance. Very cool. What uh, what was it that drove you to move from LA to New York? 
that's uh that's moving from one big entertainment city to another i found that in in uh la there was not much of a uh i mean there is a theater scene there there is a live performance scene obviously with music and television but to be a designer uh for theater all of the major designers when growing up that i would see their work in los angeles would be coming from new york and so i knew immediately that if i was going to be um at the beginning of the creation of new works i had to be in the city where they were being developed and so uh that's why i applied for this the internship and eventually the internship introduced me to uh designers and artists and composers and directors that all were inspired to make a difference. And wow. I just wanted to kind of be a part of that in any way I could be. And it happened to be that dance was that avenue for me. Nice. That must have been scary, though, to leave Cal Arts, which you knew you had a giant resource available to you in the L.A. scene to just venture out to New York City. Was, was Cal Arts helpful in that move? Uh, to be honest, uh, CalArts, the best thing about it were the people. But I, I mean, I think with anything in life, you have to be self-motivated. So mm-hmm. no, no school uh, can really do that for you. And I, and I think that I was surrounded by a lot of like-minded people. Um, most, I should mention that most of my fellow students were actually more interested in rock and roll. Like one of my close friends, Matt Shimamoto, mm-hmm. uh, is with Volt Lights in, in LA. Yeah. He and I were in the same class he was very much into rock and roll and programming and i was very much into theater but we're a lot alike actually we're very in terms of our heart and our our way i think that we look at design we're very similar but we have a very different approach and different medium so Mm -hmm. it's the people it's not about the school got it yeah i would imagine that cal arts is kind of preparing you for lights in general, they're not really focusing you in a theater or a dance or a rock and roll genre. Yeah, yeah. It was very, I mean, at the time when I was there, it was very much a theater theater program. It's since developed um, to be more of architectural lighting and industrial and theme parks, which is actually mm-hmm. amazing, I think, too. But yeah, so I mean, I, and every school has its thing. Like, I, I think some schools are training specifically to create artists in theater. Some are are more producing programmers some are more i mean there's a lot of different ways but i mean Mm -hmm. at the end of the day it's up to you to decide where you want to focus that time so who was the first person in new york to kind of take you under their wings and uh kind of show you the the ropes in new york uh there there were several i mean i really owe a lot of my career to a gentleman named mark stanley who's who's the he's the head of lighting at boston university but he's most well-known for being the resident lighting designer of the New York City Ballet. And he was not a designer I had heard of before moving to New York, I should say. But what I love so much about his work is his work was not at all flashy. It, 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 it was mostly uh, beautiful because it would promote elegance in light. And it was mm-hmm. very unassuming, but extremely powerful. So Mark Stanley has, was and has continued to be a major influence. And then um, some other designers... I looked up to were um, Don Holder, who was a teacher of mine, who's known for being the designer of the Lion King. Who else? There was also, and obviously, and then also uh, Ken Billington, I have to mention, mm-hmm. a legend in the world of theater. I worked for him for many years, and he, he taught me a lot about the, the craft of Broadway. And so he was a really incredible uh, mentor. So a lot of different styles, a lot of different types of people 
shaped who I am, shape, shaped who I am. But mm-hmm. I think that it's, um, it's kind of like that diversity in aesthetic that makes life really exciting, I think. So what do you think it was that uh, drew your eye to the world of dance as opposed to rock and roll? A lot of people in, in my audience are all rock and roll and we all love just mega rigs and blinky lights and hyper strobing and restraint is kind of celebrated as a as an oddity in rock and roll whereas i would imagine restraint and elegance is just your whole world in dance is that is that kind of what led you that down that path yeah i i think actually what's funny is the first time i became aware of lighting i have to admit was like going to see concerts so my roots especially as a musician were to go seeing shows at the forum in los angeles or the hollywood bowl like these are some of the my most like awakening sort of experiences as 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 far as like witnessing light mm-hmm. and like i remember seeing like jimmy eat world or green day and, and thinking oh my god the lighting was so well like thought out and it was not just flash and mm-hmm. trash like i always hate that kind of word but it's but i see that there still is a sensitivity there still is like a delicate craft in the world of rock and roll sometimes i often feel mm-hmm. and those are the things that inspired me so Coming back to dance, what I love so much about dance is it, I felt it was the most honest type of collaboration. And what I mean by that is it's just me and the choreographer. There's, mm. not, there's no one else. There's like very rarely other collaborators. And so you're kind of forced to have a conversation. And um, again, like growing up as a musician, what I also love about dance is music comes first. So. I, I, if I had to guess, I really do believe that there's a, a, a direct connection to the way that lighting designers for concerts react emotionally to music in the same way that I would react emotionally to music for dance. It's the same instincts. It's just a different medium. Mm-hmm. And, and with regard to the elegance or restraint or simplicity, I think what I've learned is that we can be simple, we can be selective, but create something really uh, strong and powerful and badass. Like it doesn't have to be over the top to be moving. And so those are the things that I learned a lot about dance. And so again, the, the heart of it really is the music. And I also have to admit, and when I came to New York, I, I kind of felt like I was treated the best and like really well treated in, in the world of ballet. And maybe it's because not a lot of lighting designers come to New York to be a ballet designer. That could be, maybe it's very, it's kind of like its own, specific way of that is very specific yeah so i don't know it could be a lot of things so let's uh fill me in on how you moved from intern in new york to where you are now which is the boston ballet yeah so when i was in new york i like it was i want to say it was like the first month i was there i witnessed i went to go see the new york city ballet at lincoln center and i saw this george gershwin ballet called Who Cares? And I saw another Philip Glass, Jerome Robbins ballet called uh, Glass Pieces. And I remember seeing this work and I was like, I want the rest of my life to be surrounded by this type of design. Oh, I remember that feeling. It's a real, it was such an important moment. I still think about it a lot today. And so to be honest, I, sh- I should mention, I was a very unlikely candidate for this internship. I had no experience. I came from a school and training that was extremely abstract and not at all practical. So I was not at all 
someone that you'd expect to be a ballet designer. I, I grew up in Van Nuys, California. There's not a lot of ballet. In there. Uh-huh. It's a lot of car dealerships and, and industrial <laughs> waste sites. <laughs> so, so those are my, my actual roots. And so it's kind of what I think is what, so I fell in love with the ballet and, and basically I spent five years working as an assistant and as an associate uh, working on Broadway for a lot of different shows. And um, I learned a lot from that experience from, from like seven different Broadway designers. But in between those projects, I uh, had this craving to tour. And uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't really had the ability to see the world. My family couldn't afford to really travel. And so my way of seeing the world was through touring. And I've been so lucky that basically tour, I ended up deciding uh, that, you know, outside of my work as an assistant uh, in theater, I should tour as a lighting director for dance companies. And I, I didn't know anything about that, but I knew I could figure it out. Okay. And so what I mean by that is I assisted the lighting directors who were doing some of those tours and I took notes and I started really small. Some tour, my first uh, tour, oddly enough, was to Spain, to Bilbao and uh, to the Guggenheim Bilbao Museum. We did a good start. Uh, it was cool. Yeah. I didn't know anything. I had to do sound. I was the company manager, lighting director, <laughs> stage manager, everything. Baptism by fire. You just jumped yeah. right in, huh? But that's the, but this, but a lot of those small tours, they go to epic locations, mm-hmm. but it's like one person. Right. So I was that one person and I learned a lot from that experience, but I got to travel all over the world. I went to Spain, to Cuba, to France, Italy. I went all, I mean, I went everywhere and uh, Israel and, and like, I learned a lot about efficiency, about time management, uh, about what was important about, uh, you know, communication skills, just human nature and like being a positive person in a, and not so positive environment. <laughs> so oh, that yeah. is one of the, the under appreciated benefits of traveling and, and going into different places is all the, that human nature that you have to learn. Yeah. And you can't teach that. Like you have Mm-mm. to just experience it. And so basically I, I spent all this time touring and I was very tired of uh, like, I was very busy. I, I should mention I was never not working and I, uh, <laughs> But yet, I was still not really, like, I was struggling to make a living in some ways because a lot of these smaller touring companies, yeah, I was consistent. I had really good per diem. Like, I was taken well care of. But at the end of the day, these were all, like, freelance gigs. And so I I wanted to find some stability in my work. I was so tired of just, like, always searching for the next work. Like, I mean, in some way, in a lot of ways, I'm still a freelancer, but it's different. But um, But so I started searching for more uh, permanent positions or more staff type of positions with dance companies. And so I, I was lucky and I think it was like 2013 that I applied for the Alvin Ailey uh, 2, the second company lighting director position. And I um, became the lighting supervisor for that group. And what was great about that is it provided health insurance, it provided a really basic, low but basic and consistent salary. And so I, I started to develop a structure for myself. And in addition to that, I started touring to better places. I started having better equipment. I started uh, learning more about the uh, repeatability of design and working. I mean, it was kind of a continuation of what I had been doing, but now with a slightly better company. And basically over the next several years, I uh, started stepping it up 
a little bit further and further and further. And while I was touring with these companies, my design career was running parallel to this. So all those choreographers and directors I met in 2010 as an intern were starting to get a little more famous and starting to get a little more uh, notoriety. And so as my career was building, both in terms of touring as a lighting director and as a designer, the people I sort of creatively grew up with were also growing. And so I had sort of two parallel careers going on at the same time. That's a great feeling. It was cool. It it sounds like you were working 24 seven though. If you had that many hats on your tours and you were trying to build your design uh, experience that you must've been, I mean, how did you find time to sleep doing like doing it that way? It was hard. It was, it was hard, but it was thrilling too. And so, yeah, basically after doing that for many, many years, I mean, I, I want to say I spent maybe eight or nine years looking for a legit staff position or a home company. And that's how I eventually, uh, just th- almost three years ago, I found the Boston Ballet and that's where I am today. So at that point you were still in, you weren't in New York City, right? Or were you in? Uh, I'm, I'm still in, I, I've been in New York this entire time. And so uh, okay. uh, for Boston Ballet, I'm, uh, I'm the lighting director for the company, but I'm based in New York. And okay. so I, I commute, I, I'm only there in residence for about two weeks, two okay. or three weeks at a time. So I just, I just stay over there. So at this point in your career, before the Boston Ballet, it doesn't sound like you had even attempted to join a union or anything? Uh, no, I've actually been in a union. I've been in a, in a United Scenic Artists 829 okay. uh, since 2012, which is the designer's union for uh, theater and uh, television and dance. Okay. And yeah. So you were touring before you joined the union? I was because not all touring gigs are union. Right. And especially with those smaller companies like most of them are just lucky to have anything. And so they, right. Uh, so no, yeah, I was not, I, all of my design work was union, but my touring lighting supervisor or lighting director work, none of that was union up until recently. Um, okay. Because, because, I mean, it really depends on the scale of the company, but yeah. So can you talk about that much about how you were either, did, did they approach you or did you approach the union? The, oh no, I approached them. They, they, uh, and how I originally, what was crazy is when I was 24, I um, was very lucky to light my first premiere for the New York City Ballet at Lincoln Center, which was like wow. bizarre because that was only two years after my internship. And it was like very You lucky. just keep jumping in with, with both legs, don't you? I have to. And I, you're, I, you're fearless. <laughs> I think you have to. I think that life is too short. You got to always, you know, give it everything. And sometimes nothing happens, mm-hmm. but it's always worth the pursuit, I believe. And, um, yeah. but long story short, uh, the day after I had, um, premiered this work at Lincoln center, I, um, had set up a, like a, uh, interview slash, uh, practical exam at the union and how it works. The reason that sort of happened is in order to design at, at these major companies, you have to be a member of the union. And right. so they, allowed me to design the work because I was in the process of applying. Okay. And, uh, and yeah. And so eventually that led, it actually ended up being a really important investment for my health insurance, for my pension and um, just to take care of myself, especially. And so, I mean, it, it still is not perfect. Don't get me wrong in terms of uh, the relationships with unions. It's complicated sometimes, but I've been very, uh, very lucky to, to have 829 be a partner throughout a lot of my career. Yeah, especially in the in times of thin, I'm really, I'm seeing lots of good, good results from people who are who've made the 
the investment in the unions and they're, they're, they're seeing the benefits. Absolutely. I think it's, it's so essential. So essential. Uh, so now you've gone from scrounging up all the work for yourself and just the, the full on hustle to then a slight amount of alleviation because the, you've got the union and now I believe you are actually represented uh, by, I, I don't remember the name of the company who represents you right now. Oh, ICN. ICN. Uh, uh, yeah. I, but the thing is I should mention that it's ironic. I, I've, I've only had an agent for a few, for a few years and I have yet to use them. <laughs> Let me explain why, which is really funny is I'm, I've been, when you become, when you're, I'm sure you could probably understand this too. When you're uh, a uh, freelance designer, mm-hmm. you get really good at self-promotion at right. networking and, uh, and finding work for yourself and especially getting really good at contracts as well. And, that's an entire skill set of its own. Yes, it is. So really the only reason I got the agent is because my work has, I've been very lucky to get a lot of press lately for a lot of my work and um, to be recognized with the New York times and the wall street journal and a lot of really important uh, publishers. And so it's been, it's been really amazing. And so I think as a responsibility, I had to make sure that I was being taken care of with certain situations. And so that's, that's the only reason why I really got an agent and, for commercial work as well. And there's been okay. some, some possible opportunities that could be coming in the next couple of years. So it was more for the future than it is for this direct moment. Okay. And so, but really I've been self-sufficient in terms of my own contracts and uh, getting work. So yeah. you got so good at the hustle that you just, it's how you're having a hard time uh, yeah. turn, taking your foot off the gas on that one, huh? Yeah, I mean, hey, if you can save that ten percent, whatever it is that agents take out, why, yeah. you know, why give it to them? So I feel like it's a. I think you know, at the same time, there's going to be a day where I'm, I'm really going to need them. But I felt like I did that just as a investment in the future. Cool. I think that's a. It's always beneficial to keep that one step ahead. Like even if you don't need the union now, you're going to need them later. Same with representation. If you don't need, even if you don't need them now, you're going to need it eventually. Yes. Yeah. When you're talking about contract writing, I, I feel the same way. Like I, I didn't want to start an LLC, but I knew I had to eventually. I didn't want yeah. to start an, I didn't want to turn my LLC into an ink, but I knew I was going to have to eventually. So it, it's, it's really good to just stay ahead of the game there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also it's just like, I feel like uh, I'm learning a lot lately about 501c3s like and creating um, nonprofits for, for individual artists. And so that's a whole other thing. Oh, interesting. How, yeah. how did that, uh, how did that come up? Is something you have to, is that something you have to create or was did somebody ask you to help them out with that? I, it's, it's a long, it's a longer story, but I can get into it. So basically since we're living in this time of quarantine and, and COVID-19 and the coronavirus and basically all work canceled. Oh, my dog is <laughs> <laughs> special guest. From Adorable. My dog. <laughs> um, since we're living this time of quarantine, I f- kind of feel like this is also like a time of reinvention for us. Like we can't really pursue work in the same way that we have been. And so I've been really active and trying to, to stay busy and, and develop new projects of my own outside of the theater. And um, I've been invited by some, some, uh, some arts organizations in upstate New York to create light installations. Um, and so uh, in order to, to develop a lot of this work, 
since I don't have a company, I created a 501c3 in sponsorship with um, an organization called The Field, which supports a lot of artists working in dance. And so they become my fiscal sponsor so I can receive donations from, uh, from various people. And so it's a lot Impressive. of work. It's a lot of work, but it's my way of continuing to be creative. It's one of the many, many ways, but um, it's kind of been this really important investment in developing new work as a designer, but also to find more collaborators. Like I can't tell you how many new collaborations I have coming up, even though we're in this crazy time, it, there's always ways to remain creative. I really believe that. That's yeah. exciting. I actually just uh, finished an email recently where a guy was telling me how difficult he's finding it to maintain creative integrity when he doesn't have a project to attach it to. Whereas if he has an end goal in sight, he can go 22 hours straight uh, with ones and zeros and mashing all the numbers and making things happen and pump out a project. But if he doesn't have that end, that deadline, his, his creativity just starts to wander. How are you dealing with that? If, I mean, it sounds like you're just creating projects for that deadline. Yeah, because my work at the moment with Boston Ballet, it's, it's a residency position. So it's like I, I know my schedule for the next two years on a, mm-hmm. on a, in a normal world. Uh, but mm-hmm. because I've, we received word recently that our work is essentially canceled till 2021. And, you know, probably March or April, who knows, maybe longer. So I was like, you know what, I have to find something to do. And so I, I've always, I mean, separate from my life as a, as a lighting director for companies or as a lighting designer, I've always been really interested in applying for fellowships and grants and just making like, individual projects. And so some of them are research-based within uh, like so larger facilities or some of them are just more personal projects. And so basically I've been just creating a lot of those projects that have been on my mind for years. And now I have the time and now I'm in the process of financing. (laughs) That is great. That is one of the things I wish more people were educated about the grants that are available. You just, you got to work, you got to put in some research and you got to find them, but they're out there and they're, they're so beneficial. That's how, that's how art gets made in the public square. You know, it's, it's so important. Yeah. And there's always a way and there's a lot of grants that the just people aren't applying for. And yeah, um, they just, they just sit there. Yeah. And that also I have to tell you is like, there's a lot of artist grants, but a lot of lighting designers qualify, but they just don't know they qualify. So I would encourage any lighting designer that listens to this, whether in, you're in concerts, theater, opera, dance, whatever it may be, uh, you qualify for these artist grants. So I, I mm-hmm. think you just need to, uh, it's just how you phrase it in, in the grant proposals. But I think everyone would be very surprised to see that lighting designers do indeed qualify for a lot of these. It's a whole another side of our industry that people don't even realize requires an education. You have to learn how to apply for these things because there's, there's, there's so many available. Yes. Yeah. And I learned on my own. I just figured it. I mean, it was not easy. My mom, uh, it was a teacher and an environmentalist for many years. And a lot of her, I mean, still to this day, a lot of her work is completely grant based. So I learned a lot from her for sure uh, because that's really what she does, but it didn't directly translate for lighting. So I had to kind of, <laughs> I had to really like figure out how my world fit into this format. 
So does that apply to all sorts of artists? And I'm using air quotes here, like, you know, the people that we don't consider artists, but we know that they are actually producing art forms like choreographers and, and the like do, are those available for them as well? Oh, big time. And if anything, I feel like those are more common. Like uh, there's, there's a company called dance NYC um, that is, was, I mean, up until this month, would give away $500 to each person literally if you just wrote a paragraph and it was for dancers, technicians, choreographers, stage managers, anyone working in the field of dance could apply for this. And quite literally the only requirement was to to write one paragraph, uh, write the work that was like lost during this month and then we'll give you $500. And so it took no time to do this, but I, I had to like write, a really well thought out paragraph, but it was not that much work. And but also it was not for nothing. It was, were, these were actually true times of need. So like I needed it to pay my rent. I needed it to buy groceries for my family. Yeah. So, so they were, these were real, these were grants for real need. And so it was it, just because it's easy. doesn't mean it's not needed. It's, it was super essential and it still is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always get so upset and I'm totally going off on a political tangent here, but I get so upset at people just who criticize the social safety nets because those things are available and they're not, they're not handouts. They're something that people have to look for. They have to work on. They have to to provide evidence that this is necessary. And that's, that's exactly why we have a social safety net is because because we, we're all going to need it eventually. Yeah. No matter how self-sufficient we all think we are, no matter how self-made we think we are, eventually something will happen where we all need some assistance. And that's why we all put money into those pots is for those exact moments. And, and, and unfortunately, this is one of those moments. And like, yeah. I never thought that we'd be in this, but you know what? Here we are. And so now it's, you, can't, you can't question it. You just have to go with it. And you have to... Yeah. Yeah. A much younger me used to have a negative idea of that. I used to think of them as handouts, but now a much older me says like, that's, that's our money. Uh, uh-huh. I want, I need some of that back. I, I, give me some of that back. And I'll, if you need me to write a paragraph to get some of my own money back, I'll, I'll write a paragraph. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So good on you. Yeah. Uh, thanks. I know that you also go into the, the teaching field, you're not that you're a professional teacher, but I know that you actually go into the classrooms and kind of share some of your knowledge. Is that one of the things that you encourage? Yeah. I, I mean, it's something I do encourage if you have something to say about it. Because, mm-hmm. and, and the reason I say that first is I've been out of school for 10 years and I think only just now do I have something to say. And what I, what I mean by that is there's a lot of people who graduate from uh, master's programs or undergraduate programs, really any program. And then the next year they start teaching. Yeah. And to me, that's very dangerous because like, these students, I mean, just as in life is short, these students uh, investment in these programs are not cheap. No. And it's time is everything. And so I think that if you're going to be a teacher, you really have to have something to say. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, it's just you're you're actually not helping. <laughs> and no, you're just regurgitating at that point. Yeah, no way. You're no different than a student, in my opinion. And I know that maybe that's a <laughs> some people would roll their eyes at that, but I really believe that. And so I think that 
what I, the reason I say this is that I have only just now been felt like I had something to say because I've had these experiences as, as assistant on Broadway, as a lighting director touring with dance companies all over the world, as a professional draftsman, you know, mm-hmm. a lighting director of, of large festivals, working in broadcast. Um, I've had a lot, a really interesting career at a young age. And even still, I have more to learn. And so I, I think that if there's going to be someone teaching, you have to really uh, have something to say. And so I feel like mm-hmm. what I, I've been very lucky in the past couple of years to be invited to um, uh, Fordham University. A, a close friend of mine, Alan Edwards, was teaching there, and he currently teaches at Yale College. And I've, I've uh, spoken to his class a few times. I also uh, taught a few classes at uh, NYU and Boston University and CalArts. And a lot of these classes, I, I, I really discuss uh, kind of picture making, but how to create a statement in our work. A lot of people Ooh. are, are, are uh, teaching uh, the craft of lighting design, but they're not creating the statement. Of what we right. Do. And so what I mean by that specifically is that the moment the curtain rises or the moment you walk into an arena, the moment the music starts, your statement begins. And so I think no matter what art form you're interested in, we as artists, as designers, need to be making statements. And, mm-hmm. uh, like, and I, the way I said this recently, I, I taught a, a, a Zoom class recently for Columbia uh, University. And I told the students, I was like, we are living in a time <laughs> of this crazy crisis, this pandemic. And when the world opens up, the world's going to need us more than ever. And whether right. it be in terms of concerts, music, doesn't matter. We ha- and we chose this career to be lighting designers. So we need to make it worth it. Make it worth this time and make it count. Because, you know, we're not, if we're choosing to be a doctor, that's a very specific goal and a really important goal. We're choosing to be lighting designers. So what is it about our career as lighting designers that's going to make it count? And I think that that translates to any art form. Wow. That's a, that's a great message. A lot of people go back and they try and teach color theory or something like that, but that's only one small brick of the large house. You're like, no, you really have to make people feel something. And if you're not making an impact or showing off your, your true creativity, then you, you're just, you're going to fall into the cookie cutter, follow the rules lighting. Yeah. No one, and no one's hiring a designer that's just, you know, playing it safe. Mm-mm. And I think any artist that you or any designer you've probably had on this podcast, I think probably would agree with that. It's like with any medium, people are hiring you for a reason and maybe it's subconscious, but I do believe that creating work that really is there for a reason and that really makes a difference. It, it's at, at, for my experience alone, that's what I get hired. I think because I'm invested in it not only personally, but in what the larger picture of what we're presenting is. That's great. It's really tough to find the people who can teach because some people are so engrossed in the next project that they never take time to turn around and go like, Oh man, I need to, I need to educate. And other people's, they just, they, they're never asked because probably because nobody wants them teaching the next generation. So you have to find that 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 real sweet spot where somebody respects education just enough to to cancel on one or two gigs. Like, hey, look, look, I got to go teach for 
this one. So I'm going to have to turn down a, a position, but it sounds like because you know, your schedule so far out, you don't, you, you fit into that sweet spot. Yeah, I'm lucky. I mean, I, I think that I've, when I was, when I was only freelancing, I, uh, was very good. I learned the great lesson of time management. And so mm-hmm. even when I was freelancing, I, I considered it to be a long-term schedule. Like still to this day, even just in my freelance design work, I'm booked out for two years. And then uh, my other work with Boston Ballet uh, is now my priority, but I'm able to, to, to sort of play this chess game in a more efficient way. And it's, um, so time management, in my earlier career has really helped me uh, for the, my life later with working with like more established companies. I would love to ask you some questions about what you're seeing in the students that you're teaching. Are you seeing a lot of optimism? Are you seeing a lot of motivation? How are you? I know we get a lot of people these days saying, ah, the kids these days, they don't want to, they don't want to work hard. Are you seeing that? Or are you seeing that they're, they're more creative than we even imagine? I'm seeing a lot of, uh, I think I'm seeing a lot of positive things with students. I think that I, um, what's great about like, I think for what I've been seeing is I'm always a guest lecturer. I'm never there for the full time. So you learn really quickly who's curious. And so when I do like, even if it's just a zoom class, the people who are asking questions seem to be the most self-motivated. And so I think there's a lot to be said for that or people who reach out to me, like I just actually just heard a couple of days ago from a, a woman in Japan who's a young uh, lighting designer and she wanted to speak with me and she found a way to get in touch. And I think that, I thought that was such a cool thing and I'm, I'm totally honored to speak to anybody. And I think that uh, seeing students from around the world that are motivated, even in this darkest of times, I think says a lot. So I'm seeing a lot of positive energy and I think that's the way, that's the only way we can get through this. It sounds like you're taking the time to really inform them that of the digital age and how the, the old ways of things aren't necessarily the way to do it. It sounds like you're teaching them to break the rules. Yeah, and I also think that you, we have to very much kind of make the, the rules for ourselves. No one's career is the same, and no one is going to tell you how to exactly prescribe a perfect career for yourself and so it's up to you to find the opportunities like I I remember when I was in school I had always wanted to go overseas I had never left the country and so in school there was no exchange program for designers there was exchange programs for actors and dancers and so I quite literally created an exchange program for the design program and I studied really I and what I mean created as I convinced the dean to sponsor it and give me a little bit of funding. And it didn't cost a lot of money. A lot of these exchange programs, the school on the other side will help or you meet you halfway. Right. A lot, a lot of, and I feel like that's lesson is a lesson you can still, that I still believe in today. The opportunities will not come until you seek them, seek them out. And so, so I feel like it's up to us to make the difference in a lot of ways, but yeah, that's what I believe. That's brilliant. You're, you're like the epitome of somebody who's just not willing to let somebody else make an opportunity for them. No, it's like, Hey, no, I want this. And you guys have the, you guys have the utensils. So let's work together and let's make this happen. Yeah, a professional opportunist <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. in the best way possible too. 
Yeah, no, and, and all only in positive ways. Like I really believe, or I, at least I hope so. That's that's how way I think of it. That is great to hear. That is so refreshing. There's so many people that are just sitting around waiting for somebody else to make something happen, and like that's not the way it works. No, life is way too short. Way too short. You know, I, I, I feel like I share the spirit with you in the fact that, yeah, if you're going to shut down my ability to fly, I'm going to start a podcast. Or if you shut down this way, this creative outlet, I'm just going to open up a new one. Every time you try and shut I think, something down, I'm going to open up something else and you're going to, I'm not, I'm not going to sit around. I'm, no, no. And the it's last easy. thing I'm going to do. No, totally. And the same thing has happened with my, my fiance. She's a, a set designer and uh, we've gotten into stop motion animation. Like we're creating a little Boom. animation project and that's nothing to do with ballet, but everything to do with art. And so there's things we can do always. There's no excuse. That's absolutely. If anybody's listening and if there's one thing to take away from that one, it's, there's no excuse. If you're stuck in a, in an apartment in New York or in, Stony Point, Ontario, we have all the tools in the world open and available to us. We can, the internet is so useful. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I just talked to another person today who just finally decided to completely shift and he's uh, starting up his own landscaping lighting company. Wow. And, you know, that's what happens when people are oppressed. And uh, that's not the right term, but uh, denied for yeah. too long. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. That's brilliant. I think it's great. Yeah, it's it's the it's the spirit. I mean, that's the that's the positive side of capitalism, right there. Just like, hey, uh -huh. no, I I can do this, and I have all the all the tools available to me. And you know, that's kind of where the human spirit thrives is trying to create something new that people need. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I introduced you as a Knights of Illumination award-winning designer, which is very true. Can you kind of tell us on how that came to be? And was it something that you kind of thought that you were striving for? It seems like you're a very well-planned out person. How did that, uh, how did that come about? Well, the, the award, it's only the second year that it was in the United States. It's most well known for being overseas in the UK for many, many right. years. And so um, I'm in the dance category, I'm only the second American to receive it. The first being Al Crawford, who's a dear Congratulations. friend of mine. You're in good company. No, I love that guy. And, and, it's, it's, uh, it's, and also, it's just a huge honor to be awarded for anything. And so the award was for a ballet I designed for Houston Ballet in Texas, called Reflections. And it was, a, I think it's maybe one of my favorite works I've ever designed. And I, uh, it's also maybe one of the simplest works I've ever designed. And, um, and so, you know, when the awards uh, sort of nominations came out, it was just such a huge honor to be recognized for a work that was very simple. I think that was not, not spectacle. And I thought that was really kind of an exciting achievement in any way and I kind of didn't care if I won or not and I I went to the ceremony uh just being really happy to be there <laughs> and and also seeing so many designers I admired you know in in in, in the entire uh, uh industry so that was really cool and so yeah congratulations a few of the people that I've talked to that have won awards not necessarily the KOI award but it's often that they get the award for something that they're not the most proud of they're like really of all the things i've done that's the one i win 
<laughs> but it sounds like you're lucky enough to actually get an award for something that you found to be very creative and one of your favorite. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really proud of it. And it's a cool work and it's still, before the virus hit, it was still touring. And so it had just come to New York and it was, uh, so yeah. Congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. Do you find that being an award-winning designer does, does it look good on your resume? Do you find, do you find that fits up there with like your education and your experience? Or do you think it goes experience? What, what's the, what's the, what's the order of importance for you? I think there's maybe a fourth thing. There's just you as a person first. Ooh, good one. Then, you know, your, your voice and your experience, of course, I think, but also your trust, the trust, I think with any collaborator, whether it be a musician or a producer or a choreographer, if there's a trust that they have. Trust. In you, yeah. I think that goes a long way. And, and the award is really last. It's, it's a, it's more of a, a personal achievement. It's not, it's nothing that's ever going to give me a job. I don't think. And I don't think so either. And that's totally okay. That's really okay. And because uh, as a designer in dance up until like just two years ago, there were no awards for lighting mm-hmm. designers in dance, which is why I think actually to the credit of um, LDI and Clay Packy and all the incredible organizations that make the KOI possible what's beautiful about it is it does recognize designers that are not typically recognized. And mm-hmm. so I think that that, that is something I, I really uh, am grateful for. So I think that's what's make that's, it's a personal achievement, but I think it's so great for so many people. Man, I, uh, I really enjoy our time together. We are, we're almost out of time. I'm really glad that I was able to reach out to you. I share a lot of your values and philosophies and I, I I'm surprised that we haven't run into each other earlier. Yeah. But uh, before we run out of time, I do have to ask one question that came up from my audience. They wanted me to ask, do you work better under time constraints or without? And the reason that came up is because right now there are no actual time constraints on creativity. There's just people putting together projects for an eventual project. How does that work for you? Do you just create your own timelines or do you require somebody else to create deadlines for you? I think time constraints are a good thing, just in the same way that budgetary constraints can be a good thing. At least mm-hmm. just to give a frame of reference for what, what is expected and uh, what like the outline may be. But I think I work better with, with a tight sort of timeline. I think that's okay. It wasn't always the case, I should admit, because in the world of dance specifically, you know, I don't have a lot of time to light these pieces. For, for example, when I'm working uh, with most major uh, dance companies, I arrive the morning of the world premiere. I get maybe anything from 45 minutes to three hours to light the entire work. And then after lunch, uh, I see it with dancers and the press is there to photograph it. And then four hours later, then it, the world sees it. The, you know, mm-hmm. So the idea of time has always been limited. Uh, I think that's probably no different for anyone else in lighting, but especially in the world of dance, we have to trust our instincts. And so um, I'm never worthy. You know, if I don't have a lot of time, I'm not one to complain about it. So do you generate your own time constraints if you don't have them, I guess it, what you're talking about, it sounds like they're always there. They're um, always present, but I, yes. Yeah, so let's just say if I know I have 45 minutes, I just, I design 
one really beautiful cue or, 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 you know, maybe 10 cues that are very strong, okay. but, but simple, but I'm, I'm realistic with the time. I'm never trying to overload or, or, um, you know, over design a project just because of the needs. I mean, I just, it's a, it's a constant back and forth. It's not so simple, I guess. Yeah. I think I've always had it in my head that dance always has more time than they really do. Cause I think of what it requires to actually light the human form and really hit all the different angles and all the different sides. And I guess I've always thought that you guys have more time available to you than we do in the rock and roll world. I wish, no, I wish, I think what happened. That's just a myth, huh? I think it's totally a myth, but I also think that I actually wonder, you know, when the world's open again, I think our time's only good for all, all areas of light in the industry of production. I think that our time constraints are going to be even more limited because of, I mean, no one, there are already budget issues for some mm-hmm. companies and some organizations. And when the world's back to normal, it's only going to be worse. And so I think that we're going to have to be really efficient with time and money and, uh, you know, but I think that's, we're already trained to think that way. So I think we're just mm-hmm. going to have to be extra cautious and mindful of this. Yeah. If, uh, if we were talking about time constraints, I, I think budget restraints are going to be the, the new norm for, for quite a while. There's not going to be a lot of people with a lot of excess, excess income or uh, expend, uh, expenditory. Yeah. It's going to be a while, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's going to only increase the amount of creativity necessary to make an impact on a tighter and tighter budget. Yeah. No. And I think that's, like I said, it's not necessarily a bad thing all the time. I think that we've been, a lot of us have been very spoiled. Like I've I've been, I've been very lucky. I have to say in the world of ballet, Boston ballet has one of the best light plots out there in terms of, uh, the dance, I mean, the entire light plot is mostly moving light. So what I mean by that is it's very flexible. And I, I've always been surprised with some companies and some other organizations where they spend all this money on lighting. And really, we can do a lot with very little. And so I think that, you know, I'm very grateful to my company uh, for giving us so much flexibility. But I also think that we can be smart and more mm-hmm. efficient. Um, and, and, you know, I think that that's not a bad thing. Right on. I, I agree. I'm really glad that we were able to take an hour to sit down. I, I feel like we share a lot of the same ideas. And uh, if you can convince anybody else, any other ballets that they need moving lights, I, I'll totally be here to help you out with that. <laughs> I appreciate it. And we used Ayrton. I should mention, uh, I, I don't know if you knew this, in, in, uh, in Paris, uh, when we did a tour last year, I used um, some of the Ayrton Wild Suns. Right on. Beautiful fixture. I'm a huge fan of your company. So yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for making the time, Brandon. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. 